0: You're listening to Redeeming Grace Audio. For more resources or messages, check out redeeminggracecc.com. I'm a little bummed that they moved the Olympics from this summer to next. Not really so much because I was interested in watching them. I really kind of wasn't. This year, I thought it would be a good year for me to participate. I thought this was going to be my year to get into the Olympics. And so a couple months ago, before all of this kind of came down, I called the Olympic offices and I said, hey, Madam Olympics, uh, my name is Chris Dills and I'm ready. I'm ready to be in the Olympics ready to get this thing going. Now listen, I can swim a little bit. I can run a little bit. I hoop a little bit. Whatever you want to put me, dream team, swim team, whatever it is, I'm good for. You just put me wherever it is that you want me to go and I'll be there. And she said, well, Mr. Dills, it's good to hear from you. Uh, Tell me where, I'm not seeing your name here on any of our rosters. Where was it that you qualified? What races did you run that qualified you for the Olympics?" I didn't run any races. I just want to be in. She's like, oh well. So you've met the qualifications for the times. Maybe in the World Cups. Maybe you've had some some medals that would qualify for you. So maybe we just missed you. No, like, I don't do any of that. I just want to. I want to come into the Olympics. And then she said, well, sir, there's a certain set of qualifications that are required here. And if you haven't figured this out by now, of course, none of this happened because I don't even have the first clue about how to qualify for the Olympics. In fact, I'm not even sure there is a Madam Olympics to call. I have no idea what the groundwork is for that. In fact, actually, well, I will say this one time My brother and I looked into how you could qualify to be on the Olympic badminton team. The problem was the qualifiers were all the way out in Kansas or something along those lines. And then I watched a YouTube video of Olympic level badminton players. And even though I can't imagine there are a lot of them, they're very good. And it's really weird. How do you get good at badminton? I'm not totally sure. Either way, Obviously, when it comes to being an Olympic athlete, because I do actually feel really bad for some of these athletes, because this is the the trajectory of their entire lives. And some of them have just a very tiny window to be able to perform at that elite of a level. And not only do they have to go through series after series of qualifying races and events to make sure that they are capable of competing on this level, but everything in their life stands to make them qualified for the Olympics. They think about being qualified. They eat and drink and breathe qualifications for the Olympics. Even their life off of the field of play has to be a life that is qualified to allow them to compete in the Olympic games. Clearly, those kind of qualifications matter. When we talk about ministry and qualifications for ministry, we have a tendency to think about that on a vocational level. So, what are the qualifications for pastors and worship leaders? I'm sure they need the ability to speak. They need the ability to play an instrument or sing or somewhere along those lines. But also, it's really good if they have a degree in that qualified area, if they've been ordained by a denomination or church, if they've gone through a certain type of schooling, have a certain type of apprenticeship and internships that have led them to this point so that they are qualified to be paid for that position. And while we certainly know as we look through the New Testament that different people have different callings on their lives when it comes to the type of ministry that they do. And some people are called and equipped for vocational leadership positions inside the church. And that does often make itself occupational and a paid position. Because of the emphasis we've put on all of these specialized types of qualifications, we've in essence created two classes inside of the church. There's the professional class of ministers, And then the lay class of the people who are ministered to. But we also know from the New Testament that that's not the way that we are designed to live or that we are designed to serve. That as the church with a capital C, as members of the kingdom of God, every man, woman, and child who has put their faith in Jesus is a part of a kingdom of priests. And we are all designed and meant to be ministers of the gospel in some way, shape, form, or fashion. And because of that, all of us who have been called are required to meet certain qualifications in our life, to live a life that is fit for ministry. And so over the next two weeks, now listen, this was initially just going to be one sermon, but it was going to be a doozy. It was going to be a bit of a long one, so you're welcome for me dividing it up into two. But over the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about some of these qualifications that Paul lays out of being a worker approved by God of living out a call to ministry, not just for those called on a vocational sense, but for every single one of us as members of the church, as a kingdom of priests, how we should live and think and move as we seek to be the hands and feet of Christ. And so this week we're going to start with talking about the importance of avoiding arguments and life of divisiveness and the next week, we're going to talk about how we do the work of ministry alongside pursuing and loving a Christ-like life. And so let's look at this passage. We're going to read the entire passage. We'll talk about the first few verses today and then the next several next week. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, this is the word of God. Remind them of these things. And charge them before God, not to quarrel about words which does no good, but only ruins hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone na- who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, But kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the calling that we have as your followers to be your ministers. God, we certainly do thank you for offices that you've established for leading and guiding your church. We, God, I know I thank you that the hands and feet and voices of each and every member of your kingdom are just as important as the next. And we all have a calling to go out and to do the work of ministry everywhere you send us. But as ministers of the gospel, we also have a responsibility to live our lives in a way that reflects your life and your heart, your mind and your speech. So that we can go out and be ministers above reproach, sharing the gospel, loving and serving our neighbors, And doing so with clear conscience and a life that matches our words. So God, I just ask that you teach us to be people of peace in the words that we say, to know when to speak and when not to, to use our voice to edify and build up. And even when we have to rebuke, that we do so with gentleness and love. So that we don't stir up more controversy for the sake of controversy when it comes to theology and doctrine, but that everything that we do would draw people closer to you, deeper in their knowledge of who you are and closer together as a body. But you know, we need your help for that. Because we often are people with closed ears and loose lips. So Father, speak to us and help us to reflect that in all we do. And we ask all these things in Jesus name. Amen. So I love and have always loved really science fiction, science fiction, movies, TV shows, books, you name it. Now, if you are on the other side of the screen right now saying, oh, well, that's cool. What's your favorite Star Wars movie? The answer is none of them because Star Wars is not science fiction. It's poorly written space fantasy garbage, and it has no place in the conversation with greater works of science fiction, just so we know. But I do love science fiction. I particularly love older science fiction because you get to see how, first off, those fictional writers have influenced so much of technology. Just looking back at HG Wells and his writings and seeing how much of that has been incorporated, seeing even Gene Roddenberry's information through Star Trek that has informed how we moved in the life of technology is incredible. But also, when you look back at some of these older works of science fiction, the things that they predicted for times like now are often not even quite as extravagant as what we have. Sure, we don't have flying cars, which is, I think, a little bit of a bummer. I don't know, when I was a kid, I wanted flying cars, and then I learned to drive and saw how other people drive, and I can't imagine at the roundabout near our subdivision if we were in the air how horrifying that would be because people just don't do it the right way. Anyway, when we think about the technology that was predicted versus what we have, The fact that right now, as our world shut down for the past few months, we were still able to continue doing church, albeit in a different and weird way, but with very little cost and very little setup, we've been able to do this broadcast to all of our people and make sure that we're still connected, still worshiping together, and still hearing the word of God. We have more power in our pockets than the computers that sent the first space shuttles to the moon. And so, of course, we use it for nothing but good. (laughs) We have only used our technology for positive, bringing about a better world and a better life. Wait, no, what we do is we take all of that power and all of that technology and we use it to spend all of our time staring at the screen and arguing with one another about ultimately, a lot of times, not currently right now, but a lot of times things that really have very little impact on our lives and society as a whole but this really isn't a new problem. It's just a new means. As long as there has been language, meaningless arguments have been around. And this is something that the church is particularly susceptible to now, but has been clearly throughout its entire existence. And Paul sees that as an issue and as a problem in the church at Ephesus. And so he writes to Timothy and he says, hey, there's some problems here. There are some people that want to be divisive and quarrelsome in their words and talking about these things that are supposed to be unifying and glorifying of God. It's tearing people apart. And so here's how you need to deal with it. He begins by saying, remind them of these things. Now, what things is he talking about? If you haven't been with us as we've been going through 2 Timothy, The entire first chapter and a half, Paul is focusing completely and firmly on the gospel. He reminds Timothy to not be ashamed of Jesus who saved us and called us of a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. And then again, over the past two weeks, we looked at this hymn that Paul quoted where he says, if we die with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Paul says, when these arguments and things begin to break out, you need to remind them of the gospel, remind them of what truly matters when it comes to how we live and move and have our being as the church. I love doing things outside with our girls and they love riding their bikes. And so we had them and their little cousins riding bikes. And I noticed a common theme with the little ones while they're riding their bicycles. They get in a rhythm and they get comfortable and they're watching me as I'm telling all this right now and just staring at me very intently. But they ride their bikes and they're very good at it. But what tends to happen is the more and more they would lap over and over and over again, they started looking around. And they look at you and they smile and they look at the trees and they look at all the things going on. And if you've ever ridden a bike and you know when you start taking your eyes off of the direction, that's when the the probability of a crash increases. And a lot of times as Christians, we get so used to moving around in the gospel loop. We get so used to moving around in the gospel cycle that we have a tendency to get a little bored with the primary objective of being ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we start to look other places in an effort to go deeper, is how we usually like to phrase that. But what happens is, as we begin to go deeper in our doctrine, because we've taken our eyes off the centrality of the gospel, that then we start to use that to have discussions or debates And a lot of times we wrap it in this idea of defending our faith or evangelizing, but really the core of it is we want to approach other people with some sort of hidden knowledge or deeper message. And I promise you, I am as guilty of this as anyone ever has been over the course of my walk with Christ, of wanting to have something in my doctrine that separates me from someone else and that gives me cause to argue with someone and win victories over someone and weaponizing theology for the sake of building myself up but there's a problem here because as this is going on in the church at Ephesus, this is what Paul says. He says, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words. Why? Because it does no good and only ruins the hearers. And he continues saying, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed. He says, you rightly handled the word of truth. And so it's important as we're going to see that we do go deeper in our faith, that we are grounded in sound doctrine. But he says, Avoid irreverent babble for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. He says if we're only concerned with trying to prove ourselves right and argue for argument's sake about deeper things and deeper truths of Scripture, all that's going to come out is we're going to give even more voice to those who are on the other side, these false teachers that Paul warns about later in this passage of Scripture, and those words will spread just as quickly as ours. When it comes to our theological discussions, and especially theological debates especially when politics and personal agendas begin to creep in. These things end up being in vain at best and even sinful at worst. And we see this happening all throughout the history of the church, especially the American church. Our history in American Christianity is one of divisiveness, as we have seen denomination after denomination and church after church divide from one another over smaller, open-handed doctrines that are found inside of Scripture. And not only dividing from one another, but then refusing to minister and to serve with one another because there's a different branding on the sign out front. We see people just primed and ready at their computers, at their phones, declaring themselves theological gatekeepers so that if anyone ever disagrees slightly with something that they hold dear and true, even if it has nothing to do with the central message of the gospel, Christ died, resurrected, and coming again, saving by grace and grace alone, they're ready to write off and cast out anyone who has subtle disagreements. Even on a more seemingly surface level, recently, over the past few months, we've had pastors and churches that have been more concerned with opening up their building over these past few months than we have had churches that were concerned with filling their baptistries over the last 12. We find ourselves caught up in these useless, meaningless arguments so often that we're distracted from what really matters. I'm reading a book now that's told from the perspective of a narrator and he's talking about a local prison. He says they have this rec room, and it's got a television in it. But it's not a television connected to any satellite or cable or anything along those lines. Everything they watch is videotaped and pre-recorded. He says even the news that they're watching is not from now. It's not from five years ago. It's usually from 10 to 15 years ago, because there's a fear that if they know what's going on, then it might cause trouble inside the camp. And the quotation at the end of this description, he says, they can watch anything they want as long as it's not relevant. Our enemy of the church is totally comfortable with us being as deep as we can be, as biblically literate as we can be. So long as it motivates us to division, debates, and arguments, And not to love, service, and ministry. We saw the condemnation in the book of Revelation to the churches who believed all the right things, but that never motivated them to love, it only motivated them to further division. Our desire for a deeper level of doctrinal understanding and theological prowess. And as a church, we are always going to be passionate about sound doctrine and theological truth because it's through that that not only do we learn who God is and how we can properly worship him, but it gives us the motivation and the heart to serve the way that we're called to serve. But if, if our purpose in Going deeper in these things is simply to prove ourselves right or win an argument. We are going to be useless to the world and to the kingdom of God. But on the other side of that, when our doctrine actually reflects our calling, when we're able to, even as Paul says here, even when there is somebody who is is teaching against that, when we are able to come to them and to handle that with gentleness, not having anything to do with ignorant controversies, knowing they'll breed quarrels, but not being quarrelsome, but to everyone able to teach and patiently endure evil, correcting opponents with gentleness, recognizing that God may even lead them to repentance. When we're able to go about our business that way, what we will find is our doctrine will shape our ministry in an incredible and awesome way. I have a friend who is a deacon at a church, And they hosted an event put on by a parachurch ministry in their community. And during that event, there were some baptisms. And some people from the church came up to this man because he was a deacon and had a leadership position in the church. And they were concerned about the way the baptism was done. Because the person overseeing the baptism wasn't a pastor or an elder at the church. It wasn't anyone that had that kind of official position in the church. They were just a leader from that parachurch ministry. And they said, what, what, what is that? Is that possible? Is that allowed? We don't think that's right that they would be able to do that. And so instead of coming back to them with just a list of pre-described arguments to defend a theological position, his response is, well, let's go to the Bible and find out. And so they sat down, they opened up the word of God. They researched everything that it says about baptism. They talked about it and they left worshiping. And so what was an opportunity for discussion or debate or division turned into a time of discipleship and Bible study and growth in Christ that enabled them to go about ministering well. In the book of Romans, Paul talks about this in a little more detail. And I want to read from Romans chapter 14. We'll take a big, a big chunk here as Paul talks about some of these important issues. It says, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. The one who believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of dead, excuse me, Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. And he continues on and on and on, saying these things over and over and over again, focusing mostly on on eating and what's clean and unclean. But we see there this understanding that Paul has that as we come together, not only are we coming together as a diverse group of people saved by the grace and mercy of God and the way that we look and in our background and our culture, but also we are saved into a diverse community where we come to certain passages of scripture and we know that there is an openness for interpretation and those are not things designed to push us away, but to bring us together. Paul says that if we are doing these things and they are of sound doctrine, they are, they're not disagreeing with the gospel itself or anything found inside of scripture, that there is room for disagreement where we should encourage one another and celebrate one another and come together. There is a beauty of diversity in the church and practice and even doctrine in a church body. but We have a need for unity in ministry. And so long as we find ourselves in unity and harmony about the core truths of the gospel, then these things just make us stronger to be able to go out and to love and serve our neighbors and our communities. One of the things that I love about our church is that we have people that come from a variety of different traditional backgrounds when it comes to faith. We have some people who come out of absolutely no church background at all. And are new to everything under the sun when it comes to what we're doing in the life of the church. We have some people who come out of Baptist backgrounds, non-denominational backgrounds, Methodist backgrounds, Anglican backgrounds, Catholic backgrounds, all different backgrounds coming together. And we're able to bring those things, charismatic backgrounds, Presbyterian backgrounds, coming together and bringing all those things that we have to the table and being able to use those to worship God with even more beauty and diversity. And then when we do that, as we bring those things together and we see the fullness of who God is, these are things that have the power to stretch us, to help us grow, to help us to grow deeper in our faith and understanding. And as we do, if we are truly seeking after loving and worshiping and honoring God, those things are going to motivate us to ministry for far too long. The church has been known for the things that we have against one another. I think there is benefit to denominations, but not when those things build walls that keep us apart from one another. We are meant to love and to serve with one another, to celebrate the thing that unifies us, and that is Christ Jesus. The church should be the place where people see a diverse people coming together for a unified purpose of honoring and glorifying God, of loving one another, and then taking that love out into the world, sharing the gospel in word and in deed. But if we spend all of our time infighting, arguing, and bringing about divisiveness, and also opening up the ground for false teaching to come in and to have an equal voice— we're just going to be spinning our wheels. And so for our church, it's been our prayer from the very beginning and will be for our entire existence, that we are a place where the gospel is central, where we are passionate about doctrine and deep theology, but that that theology unites us to help us to love one another, to care for one another, and to be ministers of the gospel. And so if we're gonna live a life fit for ministry, we need to have hearts and minds and mouths that think and feel and speak in a way that reflects the truth of the gospel. As Paul says, not giving in to quarrels about words, not giving in to a reverent babble that leads to more ungodliness, not diving into quarrelsome talk, but seeking to love one another, serve one another, and to serve with one another. And so we're going to start there with the importance of avoiding meaningless arguments and fighting for unity at all costs. And the next week, we're going to look at how we then move from that, from establishing the sense of community and unity And moving into doing the work of ministry, to presenting ourselves as someone who has been approved by God, not wrecked with guilt or shame, but putting our hands to the work of Jesus Christ being above reproach and above shame and rightly handling the word of truth so that we are fueled by gospel driven truth to go out and do gospel driven work, but not only doing the work, but making sure that we are pursuing and loving a Christ-like life that reflects holiness and goodness and righteousness and everything that we do. So I wanna encourage you to be a peacemaker this week in the words you use and the things that you post and the way that you live concerning doctrine, but also in a wide variety of other places too. And especially when it comes to relationships with other believers that we fight for the things that unify us more than we give into the things that divide us so that we can come together together And be instruments of peace for the sake of the gospel and declare the good news of Jesus as ministers of his grace, his peace, his truth, and representatives of his kingdom. Let's pray. Almighty God, I know I like to argue. I like to feel like there are things that make me distinct and different. And there have been times in my life and ministry when I've weaponized doctrine for the sake of glorifying myself instead of edifying the body. So God, I just confess and repent those things to you and to my church. And God, I would imagine, especially for those who have been in and around church for a long time, this is something that is a regular part, unfortunately, of church life. So Father, we pray that we remember what it means to be the church, to be called out by you, saved by your grace, brought together through the Holy Spirit and put on mission to be the hands and feet of Christ. I pray that the gospel truth that unifies us would be magnified. In those places where we disagree, that we can discuss those things, that we can have those conversations, but do so in a way that is saturated with gentleness and grace. And most importantly, focused on the truth of your word. God, we know there are times when we have to stand against false teaching, as we'll see next week. And even in those circumstances, God, as false teaching can creep into our churches and our communities, I pray that you help us to do so with firmness, but also gentleness and love. And that, God, you would give us the wisdom and strength and discernment to rightly divide your word, mm-hmm to seek after a deep knowledge of who you are and these beautiful doctrinal truths that help us to walk and to worship the way you've called us to. And that God, these things would motivate our hearts to unity and to mission and to ministry. God, as we go through this the next week or so, I wanna pray that if there is anyone here struggling with where they fit in the life of the church. And particularly when it comes to ministry, that you would reveal to them the passions that you've given them, the skills and the strengths you've given them, that you wouldn't have them waiting, but God, that they would be ready and willing to serve and to minister. God, I pray for our church, that we would equip all of our folks, all of our church family to be ministers of the gospel and that each and every one of us, as we do the work of ministry, would live a life qualified and fit for the ministry to which you've called us. So God, we just ask and pray all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.